I think for the feedback I've gotten from people, colleagues and directors and professors alike, they, they often say that what I bring is a great story to the projects that I talk about and present. In almost all of my projects from college and professional, there is a story behind it. There is something that I connected to because I experienced something in real life or there was an idea that was associated from another experience. And just being passionate about your own work and knowing how to articulate your own work because it's your work. Welcome to Works in Process, the podcast that asks the hows and whys behind creative work. Take a ride with me, designer and educator George Garastegui. As I learned from my guests, there's no one way to being a creative, but endless possibilities fueled by passion, determination, and of course, process. That was today's guest, Dion Mixon. He's a graphic designer, author, and an educator from Detroit, Michigan. He graduated from West Michigan University and is alumni of Cass Tech. Dion also wrote a series of books called The Lethal Creed Saga. He's a brand identity designer at Gyro, but none of these are the reason why I'm talking to him today. Our conversation is focused on the fact that he's the creator of the world's first graphic design educational board game, Design Eye, and that it was fully funded on Kickstarter. We focus on how board games are a great way to teach design to young creatives, and why having people of color exposed to creativity is so important to the future of the profession. Let's not waste any time and get into this conversation. Hey, Dion. How's it going? What's going on, George? All good. Good, good. Thanks again for joining me on the Works and Process podcast. Glad to get you on the show. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Really excited. Yeah. I mean, you know, I know we, we've we been chatting back and forth, and I think the first time I connected with you was um, when we were at this this virtual conference where all the Black designers, and I saw your name pop up, and I was like, boom, let me just hit you up. <laughs> no, no, it was really dope. It, it was a great time um, to connect with so many people like you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So before we get into your journey, you know, let's have some fun. I start each episode out with like a rapid, quickfire Q&A session that kind of sets the stage for our conversation. You ready? Okay. All right. So just a bunch of this or that questions, right? Coffee or tea? Tea. Paper or digital? Paper. Designing or writing? Designing. (laughs) Hesitation. (laughs) Designing. France or Italy? France. Better pizza, Detroit or New York? Detroit. <laughs> Detroit, all the way. Detroit style. Nah, man, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta send you some places when you, whenever you get back to, to New York. All right, all right. And then some quick word associations, right? So what's the first thing you think of when you hear these words? Creativity. Drawing. Yeah. Determination. Ooh, like exercising, like just kind of going over barriers and boundaries like climbing over walls business money failure give back up i forget the the quote but yeah give back up after you fall community people education knowledge mistakes learning experience skills ability history records opportunity possibility accessibility wheelchairs is the first thing that came up okay future well honestly a scripture popped up jeremiah 29 um i think it's verse 14 for another thoughts that i think think towards you save the lord 
loss of peace and not of evil to give you an unexpected end in different translations is to give you a future. So God, for sure. Awesome. Awesome. And the last one, process. Ooh, in the trenches. <laughs> <laughs> so as I mentioned when I was reading your bio earlier in the episode, I read that you went to West Michigan University. And so how did you get into design? So I got into design around eighth grade. Well, first of all, I grew up drawing um, like anime and cars. Uh, my dad, he works at, he's a Ford auto worker, like 20 years. And, you know, just, I grew up in anime, Dragon Ball Z, Yu-Gi-Oh, Pokemon, and I would just draw a lot of those characters. And uh, when it was time for me to think about my future, heading into like a college prep high school in Detroit, I'm thinking about my major in college, uh, counselor, she told me about graphic design. She knew that I drew and she told me about graphic design. And I thought it was really dope uh, what she was showing me. And the kicker was that, hey, here's a career where you can help people get bring their ideas to life. And I thought that was really amazing. I thought that I would be really passionate about doing that. And I am. And so I got into design in eighth grade. So that's that's where I started and took it up in high school. And then the real deal came when I got to college. Nice. When did you land your first design job and what did you learn most? My first design job was my uh, my internship at Landor. So the background behind that is in the design program at Western Michigan, your sophomore and junior year, they take you to Chicago to visit these um, design studios so you can know the lay of the land. Uh, and then your senior year, you would go to New York to do the same thing, but to also have portfolio reviews. And this is around May, early May, um, this trip happens. And when I came back from the trip, I got an email from Landor being offered a, a design intern position. And so I moved out to New York, July, late July of 2017. That was, that was my first post-college design job as an intern at Landor. And it was three months. So that's how I started. And so what did you learn most from that? Probably the process of creating brand identities for corporate brands. Now, branding has always been my favorite genre of graph design. And so at Landor, this was my first time, I guess, diving into branding on a professional level, but also just the corporate version of branding because there are different types of brands, consumer, B2C or B2B. And so, but at Landor, they, they or at least in New York office, they mainly do uh, a lot of corporate companies. So just uh, learning how they approach it, putting up your different treatments on a crit wall, uh, working with a strategy team or a writing team, that was that was that formula, if you will, was like the first thing that I learned most. The actual steps into blending everything together. Sweet. I mean, I guess right, learning that from a different perspective in school and actually having it in a real world environment changes a lot of things, probably. Right. Exactly. So with all of that, right in eighth grade, being introduced to design, at least as a concept, going to school for it, then coming to New York for an internship. When do you think you considered yourself a designer? I considered myself a designer the moment I graduated. I remember my one of my professors shortly before graduation, he told us that you are all now professional designers now. And this is when we had finished up our BFA show and all of our thesis projects. And and, and I just felt like, yes, I accomplished all of this training. You know, it's four years of you know, design training. And we've have a, we have an internship, a part of the curriculum. So I, have, I was already doing work for actual clients in the community. 
And so once he told us that it was sort of like a, a check mark in my head, like, yep, I'm I'm in the new tier now. This is the real deal. The moment I got that email from Landor, I was like, oh yeah, I'm in. So it's Landor. Like, come on. <laughs> so that's where that's where my self-status like went there. Yeah, definitely. Right. That 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 extra that extra boost from an outside source, right? Yeah. So we we quickly touched over your time at West Michigan, but I was reading and doing research and I heard at school that this board game that you created was one of not one, not two, but three thesis ideas, right? How'd you narrow it down (laughs) to this idea? But I mean, having three is ridiculously incredible. So actually the art design program or the professors, they, they said we had to come up with three and then we would convene, like all the students and the staff would convene and talk about our ideas and then pretty much decide which one of the three we want to pursue. And so my three ideas was redesigning the Detroit flag, the board game, and this other graphic design education campaign. It was, it was going to be like a poster series of sorts. And at the time, my colleagues and my professors recommended that I pursue the flag idea first because it, it was more relevant in, in those days and they they figured that the game will probably take way more time to really polish up and, and we only have so much time to you know put the thesis together and present it and i was that student who finished the thesis way before we even had this meeting i finished it <laughs> in the summer like the first prototype so i was like the guy who had two thesis projects already in the bag yeah, I was going to do either or regardless. If I did the flag first, I was going to do the game later after college. If I did the game first, I was going to do the flag later after college. So I ended up doing the flag, redesigning the Detroit flag for my thesis. But when I did get to New York, out after work, after Landor, I worked on the game. And so that's where it continued, resumed from there. So you were able to redesign Detroit city flag as, as part of your, your thesis project? Yep, I redesigned the flag and I also designed and wrote a booklet to explain my argument about why the uh, why Detroit should have a new flag. Um, I built a bunch of assets like stickers and magnets and, and over time, a website and videos to promote the flag. So it's been a lot of three years of work now. But yeah, at the time it was a flag redesign, a booklet, like a 24 page booklet and some assets, magnets and stickers. So it was really, everyone loved it. It was amazing. Yeah, that seems like a well-thought-out thesis. Did you ever get to present it to Detroit? Yeah, I presented to them twice. Once in like June of 2017 and the next, in the city council building, September 6, 2018. And they said they were going to look into it, and they never really did. And so, but they are still familiar with it. And now I'm like starting to um, get more supporters. I will, I'll, every summer I would go downtown fly the flag around, get people to get behind it, um, tell people about it. And, and now I'm just kind of blowing up the, the city council meetings and showing up to show my face. It's going to happen eventually. So it's, it's definitely a matter of when, not if, but when. Perfect. I like the determination. Now you're, okay, so you use your Detroit flag as one of your thesis ideas. And then you just mentioned that coming to New York, the idea of this board game never left you. So, but when you were in Atlanta, you were actually working on the game. Now, yeah, when I was at Landor, so it was really my whole time in New York, I was working on a game. So, yeah, after work, well, I was also training in Krav Maga. So I would 
I have to worry about go to craft guy class, which is is really self self defense. And then when I come back home, I will brainstorm on the game. And then the weekends, I will spend much most of my time working on the game. Uh, and then when I got back home to Detroit, I was still working on a game. So I was j- <laughs> jumping a lot of uh, different hoops. Right. So now we're, we're shifting into the idea of you're designing a board game. You know, we're trying to be cryptic about the start of this. But, you know, one of the main reasons I reached out to you is, is that you created this game called Design I. And yeah. you're, you're touting it as the first graphic design board game. Yes, in the world. In the world, not even in Detroit, not in New York, not in New York, in the world. In the world, first graphic design education for a game. Is that the semantic? There you go, education. Because there, there exists other graphic design games or board games at that, but they have not made it as far as I have. I think it's fair for me to be able to say that. For example, there's a, a New York thing she went to, SVA. Uh, there's a student at SVA who designed a graph design game, but it was tailored to designers. While my game is tailored to non-designers and especially youth who are learning about design. And there are digital graph design games online, like, I don't know, Shoot Helvetica, like very silly games that, again, designers are more familiar with. But Design Eye is the world's first graph design game to educate players about graphic design and especially with the amount of material I have to educate them on. Let's talk about that material. You have six principles in the design game, principles of design. What are they and how did you determine those? Yeah, so the six disciplines. So I've done a lot of research and well, part of creating design, I was figuring out what will players create to. My original prototype before design, I was a thing Uh, revolved around um, sketching to particular subjects like color, typography. Um, But those those subjects alone were too advanced for like, you know, my target audience, which are like middle schoolers and high schoolers. And if I wanted to capture, I guess, the world of graphic design in in a small amount of numbers, six came out to be a good number with my concept with the eye and the six colors of the rainbow. And when I did a, I read a bunch of articles on what's the most fundamental disciplines in graphic design, like what are the most common areas of expertise in graphic design? And the ones that I came to, or from all of my research, I concluded that branding, print design, packaging design, experiential design, web design, and motion design, those were the most essential disciplines of graphic design that I concluded were important to, to teach. And that way, kids, students can be exposed to the breadth of graphic design uh, without having to get into all the nitty gritty areas of expertise. I thought these six disciplines captured the overall world of graphic design for sure. It seems well encompassing. It seems well rounded. And I think one of the things that I'm listening when you're talking about your intended audience, you know, you're talking about middle schoolers and high schoolers. Like, why do you think it's important? to expose them to to design? So the idea for design, I came because I saw that there's an extreme shortage of people of color in the design industry. Now, this was a reality that I recognized just going throughout life and school. But when we had to come up with those thesis ideas, I started to 
look further into this thought of this problem really of why is there a shortage of people of color in the design industry and then i stumbled upon the design census by aiga and google and in that data they find that really less than 25 percent of designers are people of color so i thought well how the heck are we going to increase those numbers right because you know there's a lot of talks about representation equity racial equity all of that kind of stuff and me as a black person me as a black designer and me really really being interested in youth development because i've been a part of different organizations related to youth development you know i wanted to take a stab at it pretty much and um but that data that the design census gave me was the the foundation from which i built everything and you know, kids, when they, you know, graphic design is a very niche subject and kids, when they learn anything, they want to have fun learning it. So a game is the best, to me, was the best medium to start with. And I, I will ask students car game or board game. And I really have 50-50 results. Uh, and I personally like board games more than car games. And so design I has a, a little bit of both. And a board game versus a digital online platform or some video game, because I believe you get a lot of, of experience or a lot of rich takeaways from a, a physical social interaction than you would across screen. A lot can get lost across communicating online or video sharing. And there's just nothing like collaborating or working beside your fellow friends or classmates on different ideations. And so that's why, for example, in the studio space, you're you're pinning up sticky notes on the wall or you're writing on the whiteboard together. Um, you can do everything live. And I think that was really important to retain that, that value because I think that's the treasure right there. And I think you're, you're right as a, you know, the design census and I'm part of the AIGA's DEI task force that is looking into some of those things. And, and there is a struggle. There is a struggle about representation, a struggle of knowledge. How early do you start? teaching people the idea of something so they're not just coming into college and then thinking about this. So that, that's why I think it's interesting that you're, you're kind of starting at this, this middle school, high school age and, and being able to maybe break this down, right? So how's the game work? How do, I, how, how do we play it, right? Like how, how are you able to break down design as a board game? I'm a designer, you're a designer, we do branding, we do web, we do posters, we do a little interactive. You're taking something that inherently, I mean, obviously not the original nature of it, right? Because it was all tactile. But now we live in screens and we do everything there. Even if we're able to hand do something, we still then touch it up <laughs> on a screen, right? right? How, how, are you, how are you now breaking it down and making it into a board game? And yeah, that was one of those questions in my head. Like, okay, how do I make this a game? So first of all, when we look at the process of design or, or any creative process, the first fundamental step is sketching. Well, I mean, I guess I would say ideating, like thinking of ideas, but then the next immediate step is sketching, putting ideas to paper. And so when thinking about something that is introductory, um, this is meant to be an introductory design education game and not overwhelming student players, the best thing and most efficient thing they can do is sketch, sketch, have their ideas and sketch it out. And so design eye is played by sketching your ideas, your original ideas, and then presenting them to your opponents for your opponents to then critique you on your ideas. Hmm. So not only do you get to create and sketch your ideas, you get to experience critique and actually learn how to critique other people's work, providing constructive criticism, 
and then there's a lot of empathy involved in that as well. Um, there's a there's an honor system in that as well. Um, so I thought that was really important and really efficient and functional um, for a game like this. The key words were just simplicity. Don't make it overwhelming because then you might lose, you know, the attention of or interest of those student players, especially. And I also develop a story behind Design Eye. Like there is like a universe to Design Eye World. And that's the, the, the fictional school that you're competing to get into. It's called the Haas or Haas Aper School of Design, Haas D. And <laughs> playing Design Eye, you're this fictional student who's competing to get, in, to get accepted to this prestigious design school called the Haas. You have to build a portfolio and each work of art in your portfolio is represented by this portfolio card. Um, and you get the card by getting enough points and you get points by sketching or answering flashcards related to other design subjects that you learn about, like color theory and typography. So you're sketching or answering flashcards and you're continuously doing that, racking up points to collect these portfolio cards that represent the work, the sketches you've actually done. And whoever comes out with the most cards first is the winner. In the story, you will have been accepted into the highs. But at the end, whether you win or lose, the gold is in the fact that you and your, your friends or your classmates just created all of these original ideas that one day could become the next big thing or a business or some, some super great innovation endeavor. These are the ideas that people often sit down or, or set down and never come back to again. They have so many ideas that they believe could become a reality, but they don't believe enough that they can execute on them or they may not have the resources to execute on them. And so Design Eye is that catalyst, uh, especially for kids, because kids, they, their imagination is very, very expansive. And this, this is how I crafted Design Eye. So thinking about all those different questions and concerns, you now what's the most valuable thing this player can do? Everyone likes to create, whether they think they suck at sketching or not. It's not about sketching per se, it's about the ideas, right? And everyone, I believe, has ideas. There's so much that goes into it. I mean, there's also like the element, so the flashcards. So not only are you sketching to the different disciplines, for example, you land in branding, you have to create a name and logo for a food chain of your choice. But for the flashcards, I call them the design blitz. It's an opportunity for you to shake things up a bit, get some more adrenaline going. So you have to answer through 30 cards within one minute. So like color blitz, that's everyone's favorite. You have to name the opposite hue. Oh, what's a hue? What's the opposite colors, the complementary colors, the analogous colors? What is this stuff? So you learn about color theory, the basic introductory level of color theory, right? And it's just a nice little quick exercise to get those gears going. So let's say, you you know, the dealer draws a card, you see the, a red square, you say green, because you learned that the opposite of red is green. You see blue, you say orange. You see purple, you say yellow. And you're just constantly answering the opposite hue to rack up enough points. And that's just, a, you know, again, a nice little teaser speed test to get, to get your uh, blood flowing some more. So that when you're done, you're even more apt up to ideate more ideas and sketch them out. And even if you finish your particular sketching exercise, I've seen students continue their, their sketch even when the next person is going. So there's an excitement around just simply getting your ideas out to paper. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the real treasure behind design art. Yeah. And I mean, just hearing the passion behind how you're explaining it and thinking that sketching or ideation, right? But it's still sketching. It's putting pencil to paper and getting your ideas out. 
what I'm also listening is is the aggregation of, of enough work to technically have a portfolio so that you can get into this prestigious school, right? I think as an educator myself, part of that is people having the the wherewithal, the knowledge to say that when they create something, they should keep it and save it and make sure they have it so there is this body of work, right? We tend to maybe create something or it it gets erased and, and then we're like, whatever, I'll just do another one, right? But no, we put a lot of work into and a lot of effort into creating something. And this body of work is what showcases what we're capable of doing. And what I'm hearing is is the sketching gets the mind kind of flowing. It seems more about just getting the concept down than a finished result. Definitely, because a lot of times, even if I play design, I, I would have some some sketches. You know, they're obviously not polished, and they may be better than this twelve year old over here. But but it's just a starting point, right? And then once you get more interested in design, the hope is that they would then get to the computer, get to whatever resource they have to actually make it the real thing. But this is the spark, and every kid loves that spark because it, it really gets them going. Mm-hmm. And the idea of resources, right? I think that's great that you're not you're not making sure people are connected to technology or any anything else that can distract them because obviously we're all distracted now 24/7 and and we don't need another reason <laughs> to be on our computer, our phone, to check the news, <laughs> any of those things. So I think getting getting young people and students in that that method of it's tactile it's you know your own it's it's feeling the pen to the paper and and what that is and and what that sensation is you have to present to clients so is that the idea of like a bad client right they're they're technically against you right because they're your <laughs> they're trying to win too right so and that was enough there's so much to consider <clears throat> so the they're actually not clients per se but they're more so or at least in the in the story just colleagues who I mean, they, you all are sharp, sharpening one another when you're doing this critique. But yeah, in a, in a way, they are kind of like the, the school directors, if you will. <laughs> and they have to switch roles. And so the failsafe that I have in that process is being able to roll for your own sketch. So this is how it would go. George, you landed on branding. You rolled a nine. You landed on branding. Uh, a roll of nine corresponds to letter prompt B. So prompt B in branding, and it tells you to create a name, sketch a logo for a food chain. George, you have two minutes to sketch this, this name and logo for this food chain of your choice. Anything, it has to be original. If you do anything that's already a thing, that already exists, you lose 10 points automatically regardless of vote. So two minutes to crank out your idea. Once you're done, you present your idea to your opponents, and then they have to critique you on whether or not you obey the prompt and whether your idea is a great idea. So let's say you're presenting to three other players. And so you need two yays. They vote yay or nay. You need two yays to get majority vote to get full points of 50. If you get minority vote, you get 25 points. In which case, you then are able to roll for your full points. You just got to roll it even. If you roll it even, you get 50. If you roll it odd, you stay at the 25. Now, I did this because... Like, yeah, like, you, like well, how, who's to say that Johnny and Sarah... And Sally gets a vote no on me all the time. Like, how do you prevent <laughs> that chaos from happening? 
So I added that role for full points device in there to prevent that from happening. So yeah, there is that element of empathy in the honor system. And, but from what I've seen in test playing, kids really, they do respect it. They respect it a lot. And sometimes I will sneak it to them, but sneak it to them and say like, hey, you could technically vote no so that they won't catch up in their points, but still give them honest feedback on their work, right? <laughs> and they, they've pretty much done a great job at respecting that. Now I have seen students get savage and be like, nah. <laughs> and, uh, but again, like the student, the player, they can still roll for the full points and get that 50, they roll that even. So, and yeah, that was, that was probably one of the hardest things to come up with. Like, how do I make it as fair and just as possible? Because these are players that are most likely at the same level of learning, the same level of executing on these different ideas. So that's how I came to that. I also wanted to add to the, the point about like it being a physical game versus like something digital. So a lot of these considerations came from just my personal upbringing. A lot of students, especially in the Detroit public school system, they don't have access to internet or to a computer. So I was thinking about those actual real life circumstances. And so something physical that's typically easily accessible, right? And so there's thoughts like that, considerations like that, that I um, looked at to make sure this is the most efficient, most fair game and effective game for for my audience. Right. And I think you're, you're taking a lot of things into account where you're looking into your audience, you're acknowledging the fact that one, we maybe think better with tactility, but two, there are limitations and we, we, we need to build into those limitations. We need to lean into that aspect rather than kind of force people to be digital or, or be on a screen. And I think the other thing that I notice is, is where you're talking about fairness. And when you're thinking about that aspect of being fair and talking about empathy and how you present, these are maybe not things that we teach younger people. They're kind of left on their own to figure this stuff out. And what I'm hearing is you're also giving them soft skills. You're giving them the ability to do things that you kind of have to learn to either be savage, like you said, and play the game and play it rough and be like, no, I'm going to say no all the time and make you work for it because that's life actually, <laughs> yeah. but, but also learning how to give critiques, learning how to present your information so somebody else understands, right? These are things as for me as an educator, I'm trying to get my students to do that all the time because they have to do that. Well, like when we did, when we're going for our first jobs or going for our internships, but learning that at a younger age to me is preparing them for that ability to be quicker and more agile and nimble later on. So I think that's a really good testament to understanding what you call a fail-safe is making sure that that students are able to see that it is not a win or lose. There are levels and things like that. And that's a really interesting thing that that I'm glad you were able to put in there because it makes it more real and fun than kind of, like you said, if I can shoot everybody down because I'm against you, boom, I win because I'm never going to say yes to Dion's design. <laughs> And there's also the element of like autonomy. So the fact that you're able to come up um, with your own ideas and like, for example, in the prompts, it will say, you know, sketch a, a poster design for a topic of your choice. So you're, so you're not only coming up with an idea for that particular objective, but an idea of the different context that you want to create for your idea. 
um, you have full control over that because often the creator, they typically have full control. They have autonomy over their ideas and how they want to organize them and execute on them. And who's to say that your idea is wrong or, or right? And so that's, again, another part of that, like, fail safe. Everyone is able to respect each other's creative autonomy is the word I'll use. And I think that's really important for, for students to uh, be aware of because that even strengthens their motivation to be more creative, mm -hmm. to express themselves creatively uh, and be determined to execute on those ideas. Right, because they're actually being able to control that. In a, in a state where they maybe not have a lot of control in what they can do, they're playing a game where, where they can. It's another focus that I think is really interesting because it's not just playing a game. <laughs> Not at all. As fun as it is, and 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 you know that the idea that that we can make these decisions and be able to be as creative as we can, I like hearing that there's so much more behind it. So, would you consider yourself a strategist or a game designer? I'm definitely not a game designer. I only only think of the term strategist in the context of like brand strategist. But I I typically just consider myself a graphic designer or creative and a multidisciplinary creative at that, I guess. But I guess in this context, yeah, strategist who is orchestrating things to create a bigger impact on lives, on young lives. And yeah, like you said, this isn't just, design isn't really a game. Like in this essence, it's, a, it's an entire impactful experience. Um, it's meant to drive change. It's meant to drive transformation or realization to inspire for the ones who aspire. And that's what we need in many other industries, but especially in the creative industry, the creative world, because this is what it takes to get students excited about being the next generation of creative professionals. They need to experience what it's like to create and collaborate and to present their ideas. Yeah, anyone can play a game and have fun, but design I bridges those two worlds of fun and creativity, fun and real life. Oh, definitely. I agree. And I think that's one of the things that, that I appreciate that you're doing it as a designer. I appreciate all the educators that I, that I work with and, and that I collaborate with and, and the people with AIG across the country that are doing the same things to expose and get people into understanding the beginnings of it and really what the impact of it is. It's not just about the creation. It's about what it can be doing in the future. And as interesting as you were starting to talk a little bit, it goes into one of the questions that I, I, I moved from earlier. It's strange that obviously, unfortunately, the less than about 25% of the people are people of color in the design industry from the people that have been surveyed. Why do you think there's such a low number of, of creatives who are people of color? Yeah, I think that's... Uh... That's a, such a big topic where it can turn into one. So I guess the quick answer is just because white people, they dominate <laughs> so many different you know, areas of life. And, but culturally, for I can only speak for black people right now, if I, if I may or if I can. Like black people are typically or at least, you know, through my experience and witness, they either go toward music, towards music or sports or business. But you often see a lot of kids of color who can draw, who can dance, who can do videography, who love photography, but they don't really take it far. They don't pick it up seriously. And so then there's a lack of, and this is often because 
the black community, we just push music, music, music as like the, the popular or the most famous or the most lucrative field, professional field or sports, basketball, like football, like that's all we, that's all we're really exposed to in our communities. You know, we have a court, you know, around, around the corner from our house. We don't have a, our art center, mm-hmm. right? And it's like those type of institutional geographical bullet points that have been put into our community that influence a lot of these pathways that we look into. And because and arts and design, the history of it is, it isn't um, limited to one race, you know, one ethnic people, because, you know, there's arts and culture around the world, but at least in the United States, it's been heavily Caucasian, heavily mm-hmm. pushed by Caucasian or pushed to Caucasians. They, they're the ones who really care about the fine arts and design and everyone else is like other. <laughs> and so the, the people of color who do get into arts and design, they, there's just not a lot of like backbone behind like telling that to their family and friends, like, hey, get into this. And there's also just the, the generation above us, our, our parents and grandparents, who just don't see art and design as a lucrative career. Uh, they don't think we can make a living off, off of it. So those misconceptions. And uh, so all of those things, I think, help really tarnish the beauty and the prospect of being a, a creative professional. I think all of that is part of it. And, and really, like you mentioned, there is, a, there is a narrative that's placed and it's, you know, a European Western canon narrative that anything from there is considered and elevated and, and highlighted and the people who come from those places are the ones who are elevated and highlighted, right? So I think it does take a unique, special individual, let's say like a you, like a me, like the people who've been doing it, who don't necessarily worry about, do they see themselves in here to be doing it? It's just like you mentioned when you were eight, like, oh, this is something I can do something with being creative because I like to draw. That was very similar to what I used to do because it's like, well, if I enjoy something, you know, there's got to be something for me with something that I enjoy. I'm not going to go and learn science and math and all this stuff that I don't like and then do a job that I'm going to hate for the rest of my life. So there's people like us who say, you know what, we have some type of skill inherently that we're going to be able to push. We maybe, you know, for lack of better terms, break through the idea that, well, look at the opportunities and I don't see, you know, I didn't see a lot of, you know, Hispanic designers or Latinx designers, right? So I'm not going to do that because I don't see myself there, right? You may have the same thing. You don't see a lot of educators who are African-American or black and then be like, well, I don't know if I could do that. It didn't matter. You liked it. You did it. <laughs> and I think there's a there's a there's an opportunity for support that we might have had, but that's not everybody. And there's a lot more people, which you're talking about, the idea of basketball and baseball and sports are all more pushed and there's no community center that pushes this other idea. And I think that's 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 a strong thing that we need to kind of really rectify, that these systematic inequalities of just what's accessible, we can't expect somebody to know something if it's never if they've never been exposed to it. So as we hear all this stuff and, and thinking about that, right, are, do you think you're rethinking how graphic design should be taught? Design I was the starting point for that. And actually, I have a mentor. He's connected, well-connected to DPS, Detroit Public Schools. 
and was now Detroit Public Schools Community District, DPSCD. I grew up, I know it as DPS. So through him, I have access to students and that's how I was able to get students to play Design I. And we're actually working on incorporating Design I into the design curriculum for different schools in DPS um, to just start those conversations, start those, start those dialogues and to strengthen um, those um, curriculas because there, it just doesn't exist. I've never been exposed to design until I got to you know eighth grade, but then actually practicing it I'm studying it in, uh, in high school, but even the high school curriculum wasn't as robust. And so Design Eye is also another tool that could be used to kickstart those different curriculum ideas. Because how else are kids going to be amplified and encouraged to get into design? Um, they know they like art and design, whatever that means to them, but that there's nothing really serious that is put in front of them or even fun on life. They need to be excited about something. The same level of excitement that they get from sports, um, but in the creative context. And so, and I think something like design I could definitely change or improve the design education world. I, and I, when I think about, I've only was educated in design, you know, in college, but you know, what does it look like in high school and middle school? Design I was the only thing I can think of, at least starting out. And, and then it will be up to the, the teachers to create that curriculum and create those assignments, you know, create this composition, sketch this composition out, paint this composition or whatever it is. And over time, they develop those introductory stepping stones to go to the next level in high school and then to college. I'm not, I don't have enough information on how middle school, you know, grade school teachers are teaching design if they are at all. But to me, design I is that that front runner to get those things going. Mm -hmm. That's a great bridge. I think having a game and making it fun, especially for the audience that we're, we're looking to attract, especially for, like you said, for those middle school um, students is a, is a great way to get them interested because it makes it more fun, especially if they haven't been exposed to it. I think part of the thing is to maybe let somebody know that all the doodling in their sketchbook, it actually can go somewhere. Yes. And I think part of that could be explaining to parents that it could go somewhere because as a middle school or high school student, you probably don't have a lot of control maybe of where you go to school, right? Your parents are the ones who make those decisions. And I've seen, I've met parents who they, they tell me that, yeah, their kids are interested. They're in some like after school program and they do some creative projects, arts and crafts and that kind of thing. And when they see design, they're like, oh, yeah, I want to get my student into this because my other daughter, she's in STEM. And then, OK, well, what about STEAM? Like with the A in arts for, their, for that. And because, yeah, there's a, again, there's a push for sports. There's a push for STEM. But what about the STEAM part, the A part of it? And design fits perfectly in that letter. And, and then even the parents get more excited. They see the opportunity. They see that possibility that, hey, yeah, my daughter, my son, they love photography or they love animation. Like, okay, this this design I think is perfect. Let's let's get into this. Yeah, that makes that makes total sense. You know, as you're getting all these young people to to play the game, and even getting parents and even school boards interested in in implementing just the the practices that are going on, what has impressed you most? When people play the game? Probably their ideas and their ability to get their ideas out quickly. And that was 
that's another element to creating design art. So a game, you don't, no one wants to play a super long game unless they just really love games that much and it doesn't bother them. But for a board game, you know, Monopoly is the easy, easiest example that can take hours, a whole evening to finish a game of Monopoly. And so I didn't want anything like that, uh, especially because kids, their attention span is just, you know, nothing. And so I wanted to have design. I be able to push players and get players to generate the ideas quickly. And because oftentimes in real life, and it's happened to me before, many of the best ideas for said project can come out of like a quick, like out of pressure, out of like a quick timeline. And I've seen young and older players achieve that in playing design eye. And I've heard comments from other, their, their opponents say, dang, he really got that in the two minutes. I thought he wasn't going to make it. That kind of thing. <laughs> so that's, that was like a beautiful thing to see. And uh, young women and young men, they're able to achieve that. They're like, they're engaged. And that's, that's another key word. Design eye gets students engaged. And I think teachers, they suffer from that lack of engagement. And so they're have, scrambling to find ways to engage their students. And design eye is a perfect solution to that. Love it. I, I think the engagement factor is, is such a huge, huge thing that teachers and professors need to to wrestle with in keeping students' attention, especially because we're now so quick to be distracted. So I think that, that's something that we need to figure out how to deal with. And it seems like Design Eyes is, like you mentioned, that that perfect resource to allow people to figure out how to work within that. Really quickly, you know, before I start to get to some final questions, right? So creating the game obviously has one of its own challenges, right? Just creating a game about graphic design and get people interested. But the other side of that coin is making making sure people know that the game exists, right? So it's one thing to make the game. It's another thing to market the game. Uh, I found out about Design Eye via Kickstarter. You know, I found it. I'm I'm... I funded it so I can get my own copy and, and, and play. I'm not a middle school student. I'm not a high school student. But, you know, like you said, the pressure of designing a logo in two minutes, I, I, I could deal with it. But what were your techniques to, to initially get the word out, to promote this, to have enough people to fund and back this concept that now became a reality? Man, well, first, I really want to thank you and everyone else who contributed to the Kickstarter and just to the journey. I think a part of it, was just my family and friends and the people I'm connected, my network, really, um, especially in the education space. Um, my mentor, he was a really good captain and like pushing, you know, having me show the game in front of principals and teachers. But when it came to the Kickstarter, really just social media, I originally created a, a Facebook group for Design Eye, and uh, my strategy was to gather enough supporters so that when I do re- launch the Kickstarter, I can just migrate those supporters to the Kickstarter. So I was going to get like 250 people or 400 people on Facebook and then migrate them. And sure enough, only like 13 people actually migrated. <laughs> now, so, but my first, what I actually did after that was create, I launched an Indiegogo first. Um, now Indiegogo, you are able to uh, receive the money you raise, even if you don't reach your goal. So I use that as a, a way to leverage the risk um, because Kickstarter, you only receive the money if you reach your goal. So Indiegogo, my goal was $20,000. I only raised around $12,000 or $1,200, only $1,200 out of the 20000 
And that was like earlier this year, like February, March. And then over across time, I'm still doing test plays. Now I'm developing a digital version for Designi on tabletopia.com just so that people can play during a pandemic. And I think what it came down to is Kickstarter. I think Kickstarter was just a better platform than Indiegogo for me for this particular product because of the just the universe, the culture of Kickstarter. And then there are just so many educators out there. And when I launched a Kickstarter, not only did I, of course, blast it on my social media accounts, but I also blasted it in different Slack accounts, like different groups. So the Where Are the Black Designers group, different like people of color networks or groups who are designers, who are in education. And then it was just really to the thanks of the people who spread the word, whether through social media, through, through mouth. And that's really all I can think to credit it to. And it's really, I'm just really grateful um, for that blessing because I was just going to have to find another platform to promote it to have the least risk possible. It was just really going through the options of the social media reach, the in-person reach, the network reach, all the groups, and just constantly, not not badgering people or putting it down their throat, but just you know, a nice little subtle, hey, check out my game. Or, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm a... I designed this education game. You're an educator? Oh, check this out. You know, very decisive, like, uh, moments where I'm talking to these people in my audience, in my world. Uh, So knowing who your target audience is and knowing that universe is really important. And I think that's what helped me. So I'm clearly talking to educators, not so much designers, right? Yeah, the designers come, but I'm looking for the people who are actually with these students day in and day out. I'm looking for the people who need something for their curriculum at their university. So, and I found these people on these different channels and it just worked out. And the records show that they came through in the Kickstarter. It also looks like timing. The world had to (laughs) go in this crazy, crazy format and everything had to happen over the summer. And maybe also having time to be able to dedicate all of it to start to to drop seeds in all these places, these Slack groups, these Facebook groups, these things, reaching out to educators. Like, you know, you might've had a little bit more time to, to be able to deal with all this, to be able to have this success, right? So we're hearing one, the, you know, the, the, the huge amount of success, obviously, because you're funded. And as of this recording, you know, I think in a couple of weeks, you'll be actually sending out your first batch of games. What do you think was one of your biggest failures about creating this game? Well, off the top of my head, probably the Indiegogo, but I don't even really consider that a failure. I just consider that a test. I really can't think of any major failure because I've I've had over 130 test plays from students ages, you know, eight to adults all the way to 50 plus, and everyone loves it. It's over four stars out of five stars. And those test plays starting in June of 2019, they just really proved themselves. You know, I asked the students, you know, the 10-year-olds, the 11-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 13, 14, like, hey, what do you think? Give me your honest feedback. What do you like? What do you don't like? Uh, or don't you like? And um, they will be real with me. And majority of it was like, yeah, this is all great. Nothing's really wrong or nothing is really something I don't care for. And so that's all to say that to date, there has been no major failure. Um, besides, I guess, the Indiegogo. 
So it looks like, obviously, you're taking enough time and getting enough feedback and, and using all of that to craft something that is really focused to who you're targeting. Um, like you said, it's not necessarily for the designer who thinks that we, you know, it needs to be more strategic or I need more time or I need to be digital or any of these other things because you're focusing on that introductory person who's in middle school, who's who you're trying to get interested and get excited about this. So I think that shows that putting in the work and, and putting in the effort to make sure you reach out to those people are really what's going to make sure that that maybe you don't have any failures except for the funding failure. But as far as gameplay and things like that, maybe you're not having those big things because you did enough prototyping and building with failure. That's the idea to, to keep on, you know, redoing and editing and, and, and remixing until you, you figure it out. But nothing, nothing after that. And I'll also add that in the development of design, I like I only had this studio booklet and my mentor, he was the one who told me, hey, maybe you should create like a, a one pager cheat sheet because let's say the students, the students just don't feel like reading or they're just not going to go through it. Like what's a substitute to that? So I'm like, okay. So there was like those moments. And so then, and this is before I started test playing. And there was like moments like that where I'm like thinking about all those different uh, worst case scenarios, all the best case, worst case scenarios, and, you know, making sure it's effective, it's, it's simplified, it's not overwhelming, it's efficient. And um, when I started the test playing, that's where the evidence came in at. But yeah, on the financial side, that would be where failures come, not so much the the product side. So as, as, I, as I want to start closing out our, our beautiful and I think really informative conversation of, of trying to break down the idea of of this as graphic design as a game for you what aspects of the creative process do you still struggle with in your everyday um definitely putting myself into one path i tend to come up with ideas that i really feel strongly about and then my initial impulse is that that's the answer like that's the right idea it's typically hard for me to step away and just explore other completely different ideas, not iterations of the same idea, but completely different ideas. I really struggle with that. And I'm getting better at it being at my studio, but that's something I definitely am aware of. And I think a part of why I'm like that is because oftentimes I am right. <laughs> that was the better idea. <laughs> and so it just, uh, there's, it's just that kind of back and forth that really testing the waters, you know, just cranking out those different three different directions just to see what the client says. Uh, or in this case, just to see what the, the student feedback or the player feedback is and then going from there. And because I want, you know, a solution that, is, that works and that is impactful and that's meaningful that isn't just because of my personal feelings, but because it actually uh, helps the other. The, it's a selfless endeavor, right? Mm -hmm. And but other than that, my, my creative process though, is typically I'm sitting at my desk, just staring into space, ideating, right? And then I will have like an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. I like writing all my notes and sketching on just copy paper. Cause I'm then able to put them in folders uh, or eventually binders and the, the clear protective sheets. And then I'll like probably put some notes in my phone and then eventually translate it on paper or vice versa. And then I just start designing, open up Adobe Illustrator and open up Adobe InDesign and then get to it. And it's just a uh, daily or across time, I'm like gathering all my thoughts. And it's usually like very quick though. 
the one example, so when I, you know, you write your essays in high school, you gotta do the rough draft, right? Rough draft. I didn't do rough drafts. Like, yeah, I'm that, I was that student, but I typically create live and edit it live because time, sometimes I always feel like I'm always running out of time. And so I like to just get to the final, I'm so eager to see the final product that I'm gonna do, or at least my way of editing live as quickly and efficiently as possible. I typically have a clear vision of what I want something to look like, just to see if it works, right? And if it doesn't work, then I move on to the next thing and I do the same thing. I, I see it in my head, I execute on it. Does it work? Yeah or nay? Boom, move to the next one. If it does, boom, see, told you so. So it's like, that's, that's how, that's my creative process. And it's worked for me this whole time. Well, you've been able to, I guess, build into that, right? It's not something, I think, I will say that it sounds like that's something that is evolved over time that, yeah. you know, not that, not the idea that, yeah, you can go into writing and, and start, you know, not really do a rough draft and go right in, but the idea to have enough confidence in the fact that the majority of times, the first idea that you do tends to be the, the one that works the most. So you've become accustomed to your intuitions being correct, <laughs> which is, which is hard. You know, it, it's not everybody can do that. But what, what you also mentioned was the fact that if it doesn't work, you move on to the next one. You don't try to fit that square peg in that round hole to make sure it works because that's your, you know, you think it's the best idea. You're like, you know what? It doesn't work. Move on. Yep. And I think that was a key word, intuition. So then I would say like design intuition, if that's the thing. I think a part of, part of my creative process is that ideation, intuition. And, but that's also just part of who I am as a person, just my life, just me. You know, I know how to read people, read situations especially in Crop and Guy, you learn about situational awareness. So I think a lot of that bleeds into um, like my creative process too. It's just, I don't know, it's just always been there. And yeah, it has evolved and strengthened over time. And I've become more selfless in the endeavor to make sure I'm just not biased on one idea or the other. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can make sure that it's appropriate for said project. It is. And I think the intuition, it really plays a lot of it and what you're doing in life and how it all kind of merges together. Sometimes we, you know, it all kind of just blends. Now, as you're doing something for younger people and, and it's an educational game and that's kind of at the forefront of your mind. So really, what do you think, you know, the kind of support that young creatives who are graduating from college need when they get out? So they definitely need guidance into finding a job, like finding or being connected to that network of creative professionals who are just good people. They need to know where to look for jobs, like where are all the studios, the the student themselves need to know what kind of design they want to get into. They have to think about the, the geography of things, like where do they want to live? But I think for me, my professors, they did a great job at really creating a network of alumni who who are just, they have open arms to a lot of the graduates and there's just no barriers to communicate with them. So I would say, I think is the responsibility of, or should be the responsibility of the college or that design program to already have that in place or to foster that, those networks. Um, so I think it's a networking thing. And in general, you know, it's who you know, not what you know, right? When you're like trying to get work. And so there's that real life element to it. And so I think that's really important. So like 
having professors be involved and having professors who are involved in your personal career path, your journey, and then you yourself, the student, you know, networking for themselves. And then really knowing, I believe that students, middle schoolers should be thinking about their college and post-college lives. And then of course, I believe college students should already have that stuff figured out because it just saves time. Like a lot of students, you know, they, you know, they add on years to their debt, their student debt, and because they're just undecided, all those different problems. Um, And I believe they can be prevented if you have that prudent mindset, thinking ahead and really plotting out your life. Yeah, you have no, you don't know for sure what's going to happen, but you at least have a, a game plan, right? And then you just adjust accordingly across time. So to, to tack on to that, you know, let's say you're a mentor to a student who's, who just graduated. What advice are you giving them as they enter the industry? I would tell them to be yourself. That's the number one thing. Be yourself. Don't try to be perfect. Don't try to have fancy up this crazy resume. I found that, you know, I learned from other directors, like they don't want to see all these fancy resumes or they just want something simple, straight to the point. Yeah, it might depend on certain certain circles, but, you know, keep it simple. You know, don't try to be perfect. Don't try to be someone else. Don't think you're the best. It's just you're not going to make it. Be humble. So humility, be punctual and know how to tell your story. I think for the feedback I've gotten from people, colleagues and directors and professors alike, they, they often say that what I bring is a great story to the projects that I talk about and present. In almost all of my projects from college and professional, there's a story behind it. There's something that I connected to because I experienced something in real life or there was an idea that was associated from another experience. And just being passionate about your own work and knowing how to articulate your own work because it's your work. And so that would that would be my key advice to those students. Be yourself. Don't try to be perfect. Be humble and know how to talk about your work because it's your work. Mm-hmm. I mean, those are all gold. Those are all some of the keys that I think those don't change. It seems like some of the things that that's what you're teaching and storytelling and owning and authorship in the game, you know, when we know when we're in school and we have to defend our ideas and, and make sure somebody else understands it, we definitely know that's how it translates into the real world when we're the only ones advocating for the stuff that we actually do, making sure that we're the ones in the room who can support our own work. So I definitely think those those points that you end off with are are probably really pinnacle to young creators at whatever age, even to the people who are maybe transitioning into design as, you know, as a career shift. So all of these things, and it seems like your personality and your ability to to think deeper about things rather than just seeing things very surface level. And, you know, it seems like the support you've had, the mentors have all brought you to this place. And I really think that the success of the game is not just because it was on Kickstarter. I think it's because it was you created it. I think there's something that's inherently joyous and when talking to you and how interested you are in making sure that people understand that design is not just about making something look pretty, it's about making impact. And making impact is is hard. But from what I see, I think you're on the road to really create something big. So I thank you, thank you, thank you so much, Dion, for being on the episode. What's next for you? 
Oh, first, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for supporting Design Eye. What's next for me, besides you know getting that first batch in here to deliver to you all, is working on a sequel to Design Eye and many other things, really, right? But I mean, you know, working on the Design Eye sequel, I mean, I guess personally, you know, getting a house, I'm tired of this apartment. Um, <laughs> and you know, eventually I want to, you know, build a family, that kind of thing. But creatively work on Design Eye, the sequel. And I got to crank out those other two books to my novel series, Lethal Creed. And I got to crank out 90 more haiku posters that I've done. So there's just, it's a lot that I'm So you're busy. On. Yeah, I'm always busy and productive, I like to say now, because some of my family members don't like the word busy. Anymore. Oh, okay. I but like I, it. Ooh, I'm always productive. That sounds better. Yeah, I'm always productive, right? And um, but it's just because I have a lot of great ideas and I, I got to get it out of my head. And I like helping other people get their ideas out, right? So I'm still doing freelance on the side, outside of um, work. I'm just all around creative and and it's just ongoing, and I, and I love it. I love it like that. I want to be one of those those historical designers like Paul Rand or Wolfgang Weingart who are in their 80s, 90s, still in their studio working at their desk or something. I'm going to be that guy, like, because now I am fully a graph designer. Like, this is, this is my life. It's not just my job. This is my life. Agreed, agreed. I, I, I always say that. It's not what you do. It's who you are. So where can where can we find out more about Dion or Design Eye? So to find out more about me or to keep up with me, uh, you can go to DionMixon.com. So it's D-E-O-N as in November, M as in Mike, I-X-O-N.com. You can follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Dion Mixon. Design Eye, you can access all of my projects through DionMixon.com. But of course, Design Eye is DesignEyeGame.com. So that's E-Y-E, not the letter I. And you can follow Design Eye at on Instagram at Design Eye Game. And then with the flag, it will be DetroitRiseFlag.com. And again, at DetroitRiseFlag underscore, actually, for the, I couldn't get the underscore out of there. But yeah, but all of these things can be found on DionMixon.com. And they also could be found on, I will place all these in the show notes and links to all of this great stuff. So Dion, thank you so much. I love getting into the nitty gritty of how creatives work. And like I said, we have some real gems here. Take care, man. I, I hope everything is going well in Detroit. This has been Works in Process. Thank you. Have a good one, man. It was great to catch up with Dion and find out the beginnings of the Design Eye board game. It looks like all of his research, testing, and intuition has created a hit. And I hope it gets introduced into the Detroit school system and becomes an additional avenue that helps people get into design at a younger age can't wait to hear what part two may bring. And if you want to see more of his work, and he'll be mentioned in the episode, check out the show notes at wip.show. The Works in Process podcast is created by me, George Garastegui Jr., and this episode has been edited by Hearsay Productions. Thanks so much for taking a journey with me, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Be social, and let's connect on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And if you like the show, don't be shy. Feel free to leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. And until next time, remember, it's not always about what you create, but how you create it.